Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the big guy, Mr. 10%, President of the United States, that's Joe Biden. He had his post-midterm presser yesterday taking questions from his communication shop, which was nice. Nice to see the team together, same venue. Uh, anything, anything we can expect to be different after Tuesday's results? You mentioned that uh, Americans are frustrated. And in fact, 75% of voters say the country is heading into the wrong direction despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. The more you know. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Although what's actually happened over the first two years is the more people know, the less support there's been. But okay. now is the time to step down. Is he that clueless? Step down. I mean, go away. Go. Step, step, step down, you say? <laughs> Two-thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for re-election. What is your message to them, and how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for re-election? It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two-thirds of Americans? Watch me. <laughs> Step down, uh, double down is, I think, what you meant to say. Watch me. Ooh. Yeah, his pat lines. I know. Don't, don't they break. get tired? I, I know. Is, is, that, is that still a zinger? Ooh. Does that still have the same punch for you, uh, center leftists, uh. that it uh, used to have when he first said it, you know, in 1973? Such <laughs> a tough guy. Watch <laughs> me. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, I mean, well we look, are watching you, and we don't like what we're seeing. Even Democrats don't like what they're seeing. What well, you've done to our economy? I mean, please. Well, seventy-five. percent. Oh, uh, wrong track. Two thirds don't run again. Yeah, that necessarily includes a whole lot of center-left voters. Probably a whole lot of uh, the uh, new Marxists as well, because they want somebody that's more competently radical than Joe Biden is. Although they they may be careful on that because the the doddering old man routine as the cover for their radicalism is actually a pretty good cover. So, you know, I I, I mean, look, and I understand you're not going to have a president of the United States stand up there and, and announce, yeah, no, I'm not running again. Um, because then you, you immediately become a lame duck, even a lamer duck than you already are, losing control of at least one, if not both chambers of Congress. But, but I mean, the yeah, the bravado is not particularly convincing. Uh, the answer, nothing will change. I, I uh, took uh, nothing away from Tuesday's midterm results, 
to some extent, I can even understand that. I know it's not going to sit well. How can you say that? Look at those numbers. But look at those numbers and then look at how those numbers translated uh, electorally. And you can say, yeah, we lost the House, but by by a small margin. Right. We'll see about the Senate. But even if we lose the Senate, that would be by a small margin. And this happens customarily to the party in power in a midterm election with a difficult economy. But by and large, as everybody will admit, there's consensus on this. There was a, a red trickle, but not a red wave. And so, yeah, you know, you got to give my policies a little bit more time to uh, to 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 impact people's lives. And then you'll see that this will be the land of milk and honey again. You know, really, I, mean, I can understand why he take that rhetorical position. I really can with the results. Right. And he should have. But instead, he, he didn't. And what he did say, Dan, was that it was a good day for democracy. So so let me get this straight. If your party wins, then democracy wins. Well, that's but right. if there was a red wave, it wasn't a bad day for it would be a bad day for democracy. That's right. Well, I mean, that's... Right. Free, we had free and fair elections. And I checked with the Chicago Board of Elections head. Not one report of anybody intimidating anybody at the polls. No election judges or poll workers were threatened in any way. What about no reports of violence at all in Chicago or Cook County? What about in MAGA country there in Streeterville? Any problems? (laughs) I mean, one thing I regret when Kim Fox had that press conference and said democracy was in question because her 80 year old aunt didn't feel safe voting. I should have said, are you worried that the uh, Asandario brothers are going to come back and MAGA people are going to attack your 80 year old aunt because it is MAGA country here? Yeah, I should have said that. I'm mad at myself for not saying that. Yeah, the threat to I'd love uh, to know what your response to that would be. The threat to Democrats has subsided somewhat, so the threat to democracy has subsided. They run, uh, they they run uh, parallel with one another. Rob and Morris, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Rob. Rob. Hello. Good morning. Do you hear me? Okay. Yep. Hello. Okay. Uh, just thinking outside the box, for an elected Congress, we have two reps from every state. So why don't we just have every state appoint their own Democrat and Republican only, so you, there's one in each party, and then just make the threshold for passing any legislation 60, 65 percent. So that way it's always going to be the same amount of representatives, at least in Congress, for each state. And all we're doing is electing our rep Republican, and we're guaranteed our Republican, we're guaranteed the Democratic nominee. Hmm. Just might be a little bit easier in all this fighting. I don't know how you can do it with the House because there's so many representatives, but at least well, from a Congress standpoint. Yeah. I just like to be that. Thanks for the call, Rob. I mean, I mean, I'm all for you know gridlock generally, right? No man's wallet is safe when the legislature or the Congress is in session. So I, I get that, but I'm also for self determination and for having those fights. I mean. The fight to how you the fight over how you organize a free society and who you want to represent your interests and viewpoints in Congress. If you want to go full Leninist, as Illinois has, then that's your choice. If you want to go in the direction of freedom, as Florida has, well, then that's your choice, too. And we have these laboratories of democracy, the great genius of the founders, uh, our federalist system. So, no, I don't I don't I mean, I hear what you're saying. I, I'm not. I'm not a unity guy in the sense no, that, like, it, it, well, it, it, it's a it's a phony word the way that it's used in politics. Compelled, 
compelled unity? What's that? So you, you unify or you build coalitions based on persuasion, uh, or you can do it the way that both political parties do to some extent based on bribery. I prefer persuasion. I prefer that you make arguments, you put forward a vision, you argue about how, as I said, a free society should be organized. What, 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 is, what is unity for unity's sake? Unified around what? Around what? A process? A particular outcome? Well, you're not going to get unified. You're not going to get true unity around particular outcomes. People are going to disagree. You're never going to be a hundred percent. So why not hash it out on the merits and then let people, every person, have their equal say? That's the way you organize a representative republic, in my view. Unity, unity, unity. It's one of those phony politicians' words. The way it's used. But it's one of those phony politicians' words that a lot of people fall for, don't they? Or the phrases reach across the aisle. Common ground. Common ground, yeah. The answer's somewhere in the middle. Not always. Not often. Phony political cant from phony political leaders. And I use the term leaders in quotation marks. That's also a phony word. I shouldn't use it. You have to earn that term leader, office holders, because that's all they are. Temporary representatives, that's all they are. And they work for you. Don't let them forget that. Jim, Crown Point. You know what you said yesterday is the truth. The red states will get redder. The blues will get bluer. You have a Teflon president. This guy mumbled and stumbled his way to the presidency. The guy in Pennsylvania, he was incoherent. Yet they still won. It's It's amazing. This is a... It's the Church of the Democratic Party. The only, the only bright spot to me is if DeSantis runs. He's got the momentum. He should uh, be the next uh, Republican, and I think he would, would be president. Thanks for the call, Jim. Uh, well, you're right. I mean, Biden may face a challenge. I mean, uh, you're right about stumbling and bumbling, and, and we're in a position now where the, uh, the new Marxists in charge of the Democrat Socialist Party will— vote for a turnip, and they literally have. Uh, but uh, but some people see real upside. It's not just the Senate race that that Hodor Fetterman won. He's got he's got bigger upside political potential than you think. He's their DeSantis. Don't 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 what? take it from don't take it from me. Take it from none other than Keith Oberman's former gal pal, well, Katie Turr. MSNBC's Katie Turr. Fetterman as a nominee at some point for president. Um, I know there's some variables, obviously. <laughs> but just a few. Just a few. <laughs> but I just, you know, it, it, what he did in the in the super red, deep red parts of Pennsylvania and the way that he ran ahead of Biden, as you were saying, ran ahead of Trump. I mean, it just makes it makes you wonder about his future. Betterman for president. <laughs> here's his, uh, uh, they're workshopping it, but oh, here's okay. a, a possible tagline of Fetterman for president. I like them French fried potatoes. Mm-hmm. So, they're still workshopping it. Uh, Mike Scott loved that one, yes. <laughs> Greg in Schomburg. You know, Biden is depressing, but if there's another thing that's really depressing is the behavior, if it's accurate, of Donald Trump. You don't, you know, one of his just absolute horrendous qualities is throwing people under the bus. And the way he threw 
reportedly Dr. Oz under the bus and even Melania, you know, I mean, my God, doesn't he learn? That's it. Uh, he doesn't yeah. have the ability to be Thanks quiet. for the call, Greg. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630, and learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking about uh, Biden's presser before Mike Scott's newscast. Uh, Turning our attention to uh, Trump and the prospect of Trump DeSantis. But even before you get to DeSantis, just Trump in isolation, Trump in his influence in Tuesday's results, Trump in his expected announcement on Tuesday of next week that he's running for president in 2024. Are you ready, guys? Three, three, one. Oh, yeah. Well, let's just start with the the question. There's a lot of questions that surrounding you know, this topic and the, the former president. Let's just start with a simple one. Should he delay any announcement about his intentions until after the special in Georgia for that Senate seat? Uh, if indeed, as it looks, that that Senate seat will decide who controls the Senate. Do, do we want to have a rerun of what happened in Georgia two years ago? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. I like what uh, what Scott McKay said yesterday that he should wait. <clears throat> excuse me, he should wait until after the Georgia runoff before announcing anything, or even maybe having a ninety day cool off period because a lot of conservatives blame Trump for the underwhelming midterms. Well, I don't think uh, I don't know that there's a magic number, but I I, I th- you know there's a couple of things. One. We were just talking about Joe Biden being impervious to public opinion. Yes. <laughs> uh, but um, to some extent, Trump is as well. And that can be good and bad. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Joe Biden will and the left will take a, an issue that 25 percent of the people support, but they're committed to it. And they will pound and pound and pound and pound away. Republicans by and large, on the other hand, will take 75 percent issues their way and they are afraid to talk about them because of how shrill a leftist minority is. I'm talking about, for example, restrictions on abortion. I'm talking about, for example, the whole uh, panoply of issues surrounding trans from sports to the mutilation of children. 
which candidates were raising those issues in this midterm cycle? 75% issues the Republicans way. Most won't talk about it. Uh, so many of the issues that Joe Biden represents, 25, 30%, 35% issues, and they triple down. They're committed to moving public opinion. Republicans are always chasing public opinion. And Trump is different in that way. And that can be good in a lot of ways, but it can also be problematic when you take it too far in a way that is cacophonous to the ears of your party faithful. And that's what I see Trump doing right now. You know, in 2016, he had a value proposition that was about the American people. Right. Right now, the value proposition is very much about Trump. Ah, and and and, you know, what he feels is his, you know, his being slighted or the distance he wants to put between him and candidates he endorsed that didn't come in. You know, well, he feels slighted because he's been I mean, my God, they raided his home. They're trying to put him in jail. He's got state no, no, lawsuits, no. federal lawsuits. I mean, he wants to fight back. Well, I, that's fine. But I, but he, but there's so no problem with him. him. There's no there's no issue with him fighting back against the FBI or some of the or the New York State Attorney General, some of these other people that the the, the Jan six star chamber. Uh, right, but it'll of, be easier to fight back if he's president. Well, I understand. Yeah. But that's not the problem at bar right now. The problem at bar right now, as Greg at Schomburg was getting to before the break, is him looking to blame shift on decisions he made for candidates he endorsed or blame shift for candidates he endorsed that didn't win onto those candidates. Uh, looking to cheap shot Ron DeSantis, yeah. uh, who, you know, in the wake of his resounding victory, it it doesn't it's not being received well. It shouldn't be received well. It's ham handed. It, it comes across as petty. It comes across as somebody who's only interested in himself and his interests rather than he's interested in putting himself out there to fight for your interests. Those are two different things. Yeah, in 2016, he wanted to make America great, but he wanted to make your life great too. And now I feel like he just wants to make his life great again (laughs) rather than thinking about the entire Republican Party. He had a speech, you know, after the election at Mar-a-Lago. He didn't even mention DeSantis. He talked about Marco Rubio. He talked about other gains and just acted like it never happened. You had this landslide victory. He won by 19 points in the state that you're standing at right then and there, and he didn't. He just ignored it, which is better than you know, mocking him or you know saying disparaging remarks. But it was strange. And and uh, also this uh, this interview he gave on Fox Digital, oh. where he's telegraphing that he has dirt on DeSantis, mm. uh, obviously indicating he'd be willing to use it. And I understand being on offense and I understand being aggressive and you use uh, legitimate information that casts your opponent in a perhaps a, a negative, even if truthful light. That's all well and good. But that's what you want to lead with in the wake of his victory and the celebration of what's happened in Florida under his leadership, under DeSantis's leadership. That's what you want to lead with. I've got stuff and I'll, I'm willing to use it. And by the way. Um, I don't think that's intimidating Ron DeSantis or anybody else. You know, DeSantis has now won two statewide elections in Florida. So he's been pretty, pretty well vetted. Maybe there's other stuff out there. Maybe Trump has something. Maybe he doesn't. But whether he does or he doesn't, that's how you want to open. It's juvenile. I don't think so.
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Tom, Blue Island. Well, good morning, Dan, Amy. So, Dan, I know you're going to start getting tons of calls of, uh, you know, uh, putting DeSantis as the Republican nominee. This irks the heck out of me. Not, And I have absolutely nothing against Ron DeSantis. I think he's a great candidate and will be a great president someday. I further believe that part of the reason DeSantis won by the landslide he did was the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Amy. People forget that Trump is a Florida resident, too. That's something that could have had definite influence on that. But what Trump said was stupid. Calling Ron DeSantis, Ron Sanctimonious, was stupid. Trump said stupid stuff. Trump won the election in 2016 and for four years had to fight the media, the deep state, the Democratic Party, and a lot of Republicans. And... I, I'm going to have to live in Illinois for a couple more years. So when this election does happen, I'll be here. So my vote for president won't really matter. But I'm not sidling up to the Liz Cheney's and the Adam Kinzinger's and uh, Tom from Deer Parks when they decide they want to get on the DeSantis train. Because I'll tell you what, I'll be getting off at the next stop when I see them people. Yeah, thanks for the call, Tom. I don't think uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be making great overtures to the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's no. of the world. They're not even members of the Republican Party anymore. Right. Um, but 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 so uh, thinking about if I were advising Trump, let's do it this way. Okay. What would you say? Because I, I I appreciate. It. I'm not I'm not trying to you know uh, tell people not to remember what Trump did when he was president. He did a lot of fight, amazing things. And the fights that he took up and how important that was. Because, right, I remember I started out, and I'll remind you in case you forgot, because I'm sure some people would want to remind me anyway. I started out in 2016, Scott Walker. Yep. Then when it came down to Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, I was Ted Cruz. Yep. Uh, and then, obviously, Trump versus Hillary Clinton. That was a no-brainer. Um, and then you watch what Trump did and was critical sometimes of, especially on the spending side, some of the stupid things he says, some of uh, appealing to his worst instincts, the toadies he puts around him rather than talent. Clowns. So, so there's, there's, you know, the, like with anybody, there's some bad with the good, but, but the net net was very, very good. There's, that's not in dispute. So if I was advising Trump and trying to appeal to his better sensibility, if he really wants to to position himself at, at for a run in 2024 and 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 here's real you know you know s- substantially unify the party show uh him at his best it's actually not that difficult what he should be doing right now is not taking cheap shots at Ron DeSantis and being petty. And Mike Pence, by the way, he took a cheap shot at Mike Pence at that rally in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, too. Totally unnecessary. What he should do is just remind people that when uh, he, when Ron DeSantis needed Trump in 2018 in his first run, Trump was there, starting in the primary where DeSantis had to beat the establishment's choice, Adam Putnam, the ag commissioner and former congressman. It's good to know your history. And... Here's an example of the commercials Ron DeSantis was running in the primary of 2018. This one was entitled uh, 
what was what was the the phrase he used? Hold on one second. Uh, this Trump DeSantis commercial, Pitbull Trump Defender. That was the title of this commercial. Pitbull Trump Defender, Ron okay, DeSantis. Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league. So good. Okay. And then DeSantis's victory speech in 2018. His victory speech in 2018. I'd like to thank our president for standing by me when... for standing by me when it wasn't necessarily the smart thing to do. Um, Mr. President, I look forward to working with you to advance Florida's priorities. I think you're going to get tired of me calling you, asking you for things for Florida, uh, but I look forward to that. I think we'll have a great partnership. Mm -hmm. So if I was Trump, I would be reminding people of that and saying, you know, I'm the guy who Ron DeSantis said those things about when he was running and after he won in 2018. I'm that guy. And so I appreciate the partnership that we had when he ran, when he won, when he was governor, when I was president. And I'd like to see that sort of partnership again if I run again and if I'm president again. Is that a better play than calling him Ron DeSanctimonious? Yeah, and it's a more mature play. (laughs) You know? Uh, Go back to the record. You know, when you have certain uh, facts in the record that are advantageous to you, you should use them. That's what I would advise Trump. And I have advice for DeSantis, too, that he will also not listen to, just like Trump won't listen to my advice. But that's fine. We're just having a conversation about it. That would be my advice and counsel. You can weigh in with your own. Mike in Union, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning. Yeah, so, yeah. The president had a man crush on Ron DeSantis. I remember that. He kept talking about how, you know, big and buff he was and all that. But, you know, going back to <laughs> sitting out, you know, the. Um, Mike? I supported Herschel Walker more. Yeah. You who, cut out for supported a second. Herschel Walker. Yeah. Who supported Herschel Walker more than Donald Trump? Is that not his guy in Georgia? Yes. That's his guy, and Dr. Oz was his guy in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Right, but but why should we listen to the other side? We, we the Republicans' issue and, and their problems has always been listening to what the media and and you know public opinion is, which we know is tainted anyway. We're gonna have to go very far to look for that, but uh, he should. And uh, who knows? Maybe that was just a play to get that Miami Dade vote down there in Southern Florida that uh, that he carried so well. Who knows? Thanks for the comment. I mean, well, look, I, I, yeah, this, so the Herschel Walker piece is is the important piece right, right here in the moment. And I, I agree uh, that he needs to he and everybody else needs to focus on Georgia and helping uh, Herschel Walker you know, well, break the plane of the end zone, if you will, uh, come the first week in December. Well, Ted Cruz is going to be there next week rallying with him. But do you think President Trump should go rally with Herschel Walker again before December 6th? Yeah, well, I I mean, I think I think that's sort of up to uh, what the numbers indicate. If he's a net positive, then do it. If he's not, then don't do it. You know, if you can you don't have to it doesn't have to be sort of mass presentation. It can be a surgical 
usage of President Trump to turn make sure Trump voters turn out in Georgia for Herschel Walker. Uh, just as the same thing, by the way, you know, we're not just talking about Trump here. Brian Kemp, the governor there, who distanced himself from Herschel Walker in the general election, he needs to go all in for Herschel Walker, too. This yeah. is an all hands on deck proposition. I don't care if you like Herschel Walker or not. This isn't about like. This is about uh, control of the United States Senate for the purposes of blocking the new Marxist policy agenda. That's what's important. And politics isn't about like it's about aligning interests aligning interests aligning interests aligning interests it's not about friends this isn't kindergarten aligning interests so kemp trump whatever their differences of opinion and everybody else should be all hands on deck for herschel walker and the results came in kemp had two hundred thousand more votes than walker so a lot of people split their ticket voted for kemp and then voted for warnock or just sat the race out so he could help them Tom in Deer Park, since his name is invoked. Yeah, Dan and Amy, back to Trump. He's not going to take your advice. The only advice he takes is what his lizard brain id tells him what to do. But I'm very much appreciative of using the power of your show and the others on your radio station. Let the guests and callers, like the guy Greg, make the case that Trump is a piece of garbage. It's not too late. Six years on, let people come to their own conclusions based on what they really think. What a powerful statement, Tom. We do that every day, just like we let you come to your own conclusions and prattle on so we can provide an example to the listeners of the single-mindedness, the willful blindness of so much of the never-Trumpers. By the way, I'm sorry to hear you lost a couple of your brethren from Congress, Sean Patrick Maloney in New York. I know he's a Democrat, but so are you, Tom, in Deer Park. Uh, I'm sorry you lost the the one uh, six commission member from Virginia, Korea, whatever her name was. Yeah, she's so, also a Democrat, but but she's one of yours, Tom, in Deer Park. You're one of the people that spends all their time trying to undermine the party from within. Because why? Because you don't like somebody's personality. So this is exact. This is the simpleton mentality that I'm talking about, and is exhibited by uh, now largely irrelevant people who, very interestingly, these intellects, very interestingly, once they went never Trump, then all of a sudden they're on board for all sorts of horrors, the David Frenches and the Jonah Goldbergs. David French is he's, he's not even a, as I said before on the show he's not even a Christian anymore with what he advocates. He was one of like the supposedly one of these leading evangelical thinkers in the country when he was his days back at National Review and before that at First Things. Uh, what? All completely over the edge. Same thing with uh, the political hacks who are not, don't have nearly the gray matter as a Goldberg or a French like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. I mean, I, there's no way on this planet that I would ever suggest, would ever recommend casting your lot with people who think and behave the way that never Trumpers like Tom De- from Deer Park and some of those other quote unquote conservative intellectuals have f- behaved in the last four years. They have been just as much a detriment to free minds and free markets as the new Marxists, all their protestations about how they're the true uh, uh, classical liberals notwithstanding. What a joke. So thanks for calling, Tom, for Deer Park.
It's always nice to have a an example at the ready. Frank in Arlington Heights. Yeah, Trump was not a piece of garbage. He he you know, he definitely had his his role in my opinion over the long term. He was almost like the Nixon to Reagan. Nixon was a, a tough bird. Knock him rock him. Yeah, but Nixon him, was a campaign. Oh God, yeah, so I, didn't, right. I didn't mean to interrupt your Nixon impersonation, no, I like but, that. but Nixon was a terrible president. That's the difference. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. Now, Trump was definitely better policy-wise than, than Nixon. But what this country needs is somebody who can transcend all this. We don't need immanence, transcendence, not immanence. We need, I think, in many respects, DeSantis. He is a young guy. He's 44, 45 years old. He's got a young family, nice-looking kids. Um, imagine what a what – what a, um, difference that's going to look like versus a biden or even trump we don't need these older kids out there trump trump will be 78 and and i like trump he did a great job um i think he's got his role still but i really think in in many respects DeSantis is the guy going forward this country needs to get over the fourth turning i'm sure you're familiar with that dan theory about the generations and and the boomers are that generation that is involved in the fourth turning we need to move on and we need to get somebody who could potentially unify the country, and that's somebody younger. The Democrats have had younger people like Clinton and Obama. We need our own younger president who's in his 40s who can unite the country in some way. If the country's unitable, I, I think it still is potentially, yeah, but we need somebody word. who's a little more smooth. Yeah, th- and, I think, um, thanks for the call, Frank. But I, I, you know, I don't want to overstate how easy it's going to be for DeSantis either. Like this is a, a, a mortal lock if he— runs for president it's not going to be and don't let what happened in florida fool you that it's representative of the rest of the country first of all he ran against a wildly weak perhaps the weakest candidate the democrats could have picked in florida this is a guy who's held every position and been a member of every political party that is available in charlie christ so that helped to extend the margin as well I'm a huge buyer of DeSantis. I've liked him from the very beginning, from the time he was in Congress. I think he's outstanding. I think he's a great executive. I think he is whip smart. Uh, he, as I've said many times, he doesn't just take positions. He makes arguments. He brings people along, which is how he persuades and how he moves people that aren't nece- that don't necessarily vote Republican the way he did to win a majority of Latino votes, the way he did to win Miami-Dade, which is majority Latino, and so on and so forth. So I'm a huge buyer. But it's not going to be any walk in the park because, as other people have observed on this show, callers, you know, he will become the new Hitler to the left were he to be the nominee. They're not going to uh, character. They're not going to allow uh, the, the nation to characterize him accurately as accurately as Frank from Arlington Heights just did. So, you know, it's going to be a slog no matter who. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, with uh, still 25% of the vote not reporting in Arizona. Can we talk again about competency when it comes to election administration? How these contests can go on for days, if not weeks, without getting to you know ninety nine percent of all ballots cast reporting. I, I don't know. I mean, think about the Pennsylvania race alone. They had three months to vote, and most of the people voted before they ever heard from Fetterman, before he did that NBC interview, and before he did the debate. And you can't okay, take well, your vote back once you I know, but I'm just saying the longer a system's in place, the more vulnerable it becomes. Well, that's so. So, yeah, the, that's a separate so, issue than Arizona. But. Then that's a separate issue than counting. But but yeah, right. That's part of it, too. Right. The election season, not election day. Th- that's definitely a topic of conversation. And it should be for anybody who's. Cares interested, about this country. <laughs> well, anybody who's really? interested in the you know, a proper administration of elections. Uh, and yeah, that's a big issue, right? The, that Fetterman had a significant portion of his votes in before the yeah. one and only debate that he participated in that didn't go swimmingly for him, as we all know. So that's an issue. But, but Carrie Lake was on with Tucker last night talking about Maricopa County. It's a disaster. How can Maricopa County be a disaster? This is not a poor county. No. This is not a poor state. This is not a place that doesn't have professional people available to be put in positions of authority so that you don't embarrass yourselves every two years with how you administer elections the way that we're used to in Cook County and in Illinois. Even Cook County and Illinois look pretty good by comparison to places like Arizona. Yeah, they had a glitch on their tabulating machines. So a fourth of their ballots were being counted on site at a few of the polling places in Maricopa County. This is uh, Carrie Lake on who's in charge of the elections in Arizona. Maricopa County election officials who are the most incompetent in the country are dragging their feet in delivering what everybody wants to know, the 650,000 votes that they're hopefully going to start telling us about starting tomorrow that were the Republican voters, the ones who showed up on game day to vote. And that's what we're waiting for. We think they're going to start delivering those results tomorrow. And the person in charge is the Secretary of State, who is... Katie Hobbs, the Democratic challenger. She should have recused herself from overseeing that election. Well, apparently she has. Actually, from watching Katie Hobbs over the last several months, I can see why they have so many problems with election administration in Arizona. 
this is the point that Kerr uh, Lake went on to make about, uh, well, about her and some bureaucrats whose name you've never heard of. But these are the people in charge. And again, an accounting for how this can happen. And we see this happen uh, repeatedly in some states and repeatedly um, repeat, repeatedly in other states uh, every election cycle. What, what is so difficult about this? You're making something that should be very simple, something very complicated. And technology seems to actually be having a negative impact right. on election Ugh. administration in some of these venues where they're trying to come with all sorts of new and exciting ways to get people's votes in who otherwise aren't inclined to vote. This is Carrie Lake. man named Stephen Richer is a big, um, a big part of it in Maricopa County. And then my opponent. Shocking. My opponent in the uh, Miss I Don't Debate and I Hide in the Basement, Katie Hobbs, Secretary of State, is in charge of our elections as well. So we have two of the most incompetent people in all of government in this country running elections in Arizona. But I want the people of Arizona to know this. We're going to see this start going in my direction. <clears throat> and on day one, we're going to start working to reform our elections so that all voters can feel confident that we have honest elections. This is not rocket science, Tucker. We can go back to the way we used to do it, which worked. It's a shame that my homeowners association election is far more secure and accurate than the elections we seem to have here in Arizona. And we're going to the voters in Arizona are tired of shoddy elections that are run by imbeciles. And that's going to change. Can we end shoddy elections run by imbeciles? Can I get an amen? 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. My mom has lived there 30-plus years now. They never get it right. And if it's not Maricopa County, then it's Pinal County or Pima County, where she is. They always have problems with their elections. I mean, again, you made a great point. We got it right in Cook County, but, I mean, but they can't get it right. And they're still now, they're saying this morning they have 400,000 ballots yet that need to be counted from Election Day and those who turned over their um, ballots over the weekend at drop boxes. In L.A., it's not just Arizona. It's not just Maricopa County. In L.A., the mayor's race there, which uh, oh, I, yeah, I seem to be the there. only one outside of L.A. is following this race. I don't know why the you, well, I punditry love it. Yes. is not following this because it's such an interesting race. What's going on? 44% of precincts reporting right now. That's What? 44% in L.A. Oh so gosh. you've got you've only you've they've only posted and Rick Caruso, the the Republican billionaire real estate developer, he's up a couple of points on Karen Bass, the six time congressman, six term congresswoman. But they've counted this is L.A. They've counted uh, four hundred ninety two thousand ballots so far. And we're sitting here on Thursday morning. There's a, a hamster in a wheel there, too. Forty four percent reporting. How is that possible? It's Thursday already. I mean, honestly, I, I don't know why. I mean, I think I think this would be a, a popular issue. So Carrie Lake talking about, well, she's got two popular issues immediately if if and when she wins that governor's race. One is, with, and this is going to be a really interesting moment, to declare under the Constitution that Arizona is subject to an invasion from the southern, you know, from at their southern border. Right, because Katie gonna, Hobbs is going to do nothing about the border issue. Well, that's going to be interesting. And then secondly, as you just heard her say, to... Uh, do in Arizona what they did in Florida and Ohio. You know, Florida and Ohio had all kinds of problems. Obviously, we remember Florida from 2000, the hanging chats. 
Florida had all kinds of problems with its election administration, too, for a while, most notably in 2000. So did Ohio when Ohio was the swing state that was deciding, you know, the uh, uh, the the 2004 election, for example, between Bush and Kerry. All kinds of problems. But uh, Ken Blackwell, the secretary of state in Ohio at the time, moved to tighten up how elections were run there. And you really haven't heard problems from Ohio since. And after 2000, Florida got its act together yep. under Jeb Bush, credit where credit's due, uh, and tightened up their elections too. And while there are 450,000 votes, 44% reporting in, in the city of L.A., the state of Florida with 23 million people had the results lickety split on Tuesday night. So, uh, of course, it can be done. Of course, this should not be complicated. Of course, technology should make this process easier, even as they're extending the period for which people can vote and the ways by which they can vote. But you just have these um, these laggards and. This, this needs to be corrected. This this know, and this is not I'm not relitigating 2020. But the point of what happened in 2020 is to say prospectively, particularly when you have Republicans in charge or at least Republicans that are impactful, they do have some carry some weight. I mean, you have an outgoing Republican governor in Arizona. What did Doug Ducey do from 2020 to present? Uh, it, apparently, apparently nothing. I mean, come on. This is an important issue. You want to have faith in the outcomes of elections? Then you need to present a professional operation in terms of tabulating results and getting them to the people in a timely fashion. And that's not happening in places where it should be happening, which is everywhere. And when it doesn't happen in one place where there are, you know, which are uh, which turn out to be. Dis, you know, to have a major impact on the balance of power in the country, like Arizona will, or for for example, Nevada. if something happened in Georgia right. in the in the in the, the the runoff, I mean, then people watching this around the nation look and say, well, why should I have faith in the people that are administering our elections? Why should I participate in these elections? Well, I had that conversation with one of our longtime listeners yesterday. They said, I am done. There was a. Uh, USB cord hooked up to the machine, and he's into, you know, um, cybersecurity. And just, he goes, I, I'm done voting. I am absolutely, that's it. And that combined with the Sharpie was too much. He said he doesn't have faith in the election. And then look what's going on in Nevada. They're going to count mail-in ballots until Saturday. If you can't get your you-know-what together and mail in your ballot before the election, then don't have mail-in ballots. I mean, that's I mean, because that race is so tight and they're waiting till Saturday. Then they're going to call it on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. That's moved up now. Nevada has 84 percent of precincts reporting. What? what? So so, you know, I think there's this is maybe perhaps a conversation that Republicans should lead at the national level, even though it's a state and local issue. I understand. But you can lead the conversation at the national level so you generate debate at the state and local level, which is something Carrie Lake said in that interview with Tucker Carlson. Let's go back to the way it used to be because there were just fewer problems. Get get rid of the machines, I mean in terms of the electronic voting. Uh, Tighten up mail-in and early voting. Yes. Uh, Whatever. Make make voting for four days. Make uh, Election Day a national holiday. All the things that you've heard before. But but, that. Yeah. But 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 let's 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 tighten things up and make sure that 
that we get results to people in a timely fashion, like election night. I don't see a reason why every state can't do what Illinois was able to do, what Florida did, blue and red states around the country are able to do, which is deliver the results on election night. Sorry, we had a state holiday, not a federal holiday. I mean, I just this just feels like sabotage of Republican ballots because most Republicans vote on election day. Well, this is why and suspicion. But this is, and then they say, "Well, how, oh, you're you're an election no, you're denier." Right. No, no. Yeah. Well, why why shouldn't uh, my spidey senses be tingling? We know right now, and this is a, a, another conversation about what the Republican program is going to be with early and mail and. Uh, and vote by mail, mail uh, early voting programs. That's a, that's another issue. But we know that Dems dominate these early voting and vote by mail mm-hmm. uh, periods around the nation. And we know most Republicans are Election Day voters. Actually, Carrie Lake made the point there was something like 265,000 Republicans who took their vote by mail application to the polling place because they didn't want to say oh you already they didn't want to get that oh you already voted because right. you got a, a ballot mail to you no i didn't vote here's the ballot i want to vote on election day i want to vote here at the polling place so this speaks to the skepticism and you can just uh dismiss the skepticism and, and by the way this is skepticism that hurts the republican party so the republican party, you, you you can you can either cower in the face of the accusations of being an election denier and allow and join the Democrats in dismissing legitimate suspicions and skepticism because of the, per, the, the the competency or lack thereof on display. Or you can address how elections are administered where they're not being administered very effectively. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy and I made a bet during this cycle after the Dobbs decision, and uh, this was that bet. We have it uh, recorded. We have it recorded. Yeah, we've got to go right to the tape on this. Make sure there's (laughs) no confusion about the bet. All right. this, is, this reminds me of the progressive commercial where the, the couple's fighting about who you know, was going to bring the life jackets and they throw the red flag down. Go to the instant replay. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're doing right now, folks. All right, here it is. Can we make a bet? Yeah, uh, uh, yes. How much do you want to bet? A hundred dollars. How about a million? I don't have a million. Yeah, exactly. You, you, do you have a hundred? Because I'm going to make you pay. <laughs> you're going to pay. This is no, you're not going to pass okay, on this here. one. All right. Yeah. All right, hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. All right. Abortion will be the number one issue. <laughs> that's yeah. the, that's the bet you want to make. Oh, uh, I'll say top two. Abortion will be a top two issue. Come on, November on the issue matrix, abortion will be top two oh, in yeah. the general election. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And uh, here's the problem with uh, <laughs> that bet. <clears throat> I got to put my lawyer hat on here. Yeah. Trying to argue oh, my yes. way out okay, of this one, Mr. Yeah. Croft. Yes, I was a bit imprecise with my language oh. <laughs> when, when it came oh. to that bet, and so so here, here's all right, so so here's the results. Now, are and you I, doing Illinois or nationwide? I'm doing Illinois. Okay, is that what you wanted? That's what the bet that's was, what right? The bet was yes. Yeah, what is Illinois. what is going to be the issue that's going to drive voters to the polls on election day? 
Well, and I said issue matrix, but I was imprecise because oh, it's boy. it's more complicated than that. And I I didn't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pay this bet <sighs> because of my imprecision. Um, I have to pay for my imprecision. All right. All right. So, but so, you want to do so, Venmo or PayPal? Well, well I don't I'll, do PayPal anymore. I, I I will Venmo you. Okay. All right. Promise. So I, I uh, do you do you think I'm a welcher? Are you accusing me of being a welcher? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so here's the thing. Yes, sir. And, and we'll go to the, the, the issue matrix, the last poll I did in the governor's race in Illinois, mm-hmm. which was a couple weeks ago. So we'll take this as is. On the issue matrix, so what issue is most important to you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's open-ended. Uh, number one, abortion, 18%. Number two, crime, 17%. Number three, inflation, 13%. So I'll pay the bet, but here's the... The caveat uh-huh. for those who are arguing that it was abortion, it was abortion, it was abortion. Yes and no. Because you have to ask yourself, for the, the 18% for that small plurality of Illinois voters who said abortion is the most important issue to me, what percentage do you think were gettable by a Republican? Is this not... Going, and it is. You can look at the cross tabs and find out. It is mainly, overwhelmingly, actually, the awfuls, the affluent white female leftists, awfuls, that made abortion their number one issue. So you weren't going to get them anyway if you're a Republican, even if you're pro-choice. Just ask Greg Hart in DuPage County, who did a 180. I heard. You yeah. did, and sent out mailers saying, I'm, you know, I'll am i always protect a woman's right to choose, and so on and so forth, after he filled out an Illinois Right to Life questionnaire four years ago saying he's pro-life when he was running for county board. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if, you're, if you had exceptions. And it didn't matter what those exceptions were. You all got – all Republicans got painted the same way in Illinois and everywhere else. You're just – everybody's an abortion extremist. There's no nuance to the issue, even though there is great nuance to the issue, of course, we know. And there – and that that nuance is really important because the American public is distributed over those nuances when it comes to things like parental notification, late term abortions, taxpayer funding and other issues. So my my imprecision was to say it's not going to be the number one issue. But what I really wanted what I really meant, of course, it's not going to be the number one issue for those swing voters that are going to decide the election. And it wasn't. But so I'm going to pay the hun- like, okay. I'm going to pay the hundred bucks, but I want you to feel bad about it because you know that's not what I meant. <laughs> I'm going to feel bad about it. No, you have to feel all. bad about it. No, I'm I'm okay. I knew it was going to drive right. more voters to the polls on election day. It motivated people to go and vote. Well, I, it, I, it, I, it, I talked it, to somebody yesterday. I said, you know, I had the well, what do you think you won conversation with one of my neighbors who's like, how are you feeling today? I'm like, I'm I'm fine, but what what did you win? She said, well, abortion rights. For women, I said, no, you, and, and how you old already she? had this. 70? She's in her 30s. Yeah. And she, I said, you already have that. And that was not going to go away if Darren Bailey was going to win either because the House and Senate are controlled by Democrats. But you, but, like, but, but that voter you're talking to, she, yeah. she votes every election, right? No, she does not vote every election. That motivated her to get out and vote. And I'm not exactly, exactly. This is so what it did was it helped to drive. Dem turnout that might have otherwise been even more depressed than it was. I see what you're doing. And, yeah. No, but that, that that's exactly what that's exactly what happened. All it did was it's it was a base play. It was how do we turn out the base against the backdrop of this economy, against the backdrop of lawlessness in major cities which are dominated by our people? How do we get them out? 
you had now it, it it required the Supreme Court to issue the Dobbs decision, which right. they did, and I'm glad they did. Um, but uh, but but that's that was the it's not it didn't move anybody. It just motivated people who may otherwise have been as unmotivated as it turns out a lot of Republicans were to come out and vote. You see? Yeah. And a lot of moms that did not want to vote for Pritzker ended up voting for Pritzker like that. My neighbor friend. Because moms. of that issue. Moms. Right. The pro-abortion moms. I know. Is, it, is, is there is anything it just... more ironic? <laughs> 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Let's talk a little bit more about this uh, globally, get your perspective on this, because this is what the left is trying to uh, perpetuate as one of two dominant themes that allowed the Democrats to avoid a red wave. John Hayward, uh, who writes over at Powerline blog, uh, wrote this uh, on Twitter. Uh, poll after poll said voters were far more concerned about inflation, crime, et cetera. And yet on election night, we got all these exit polls saying it effectively erased the economy as an issue. Abortion did. That's raw institutional power at work wielded over the course of generations. Mail in ballots cast at the height of post Dodd pushback were a big reason polls from the fall showed abortion receding as an issue were wrong. The pro-abortion reflex ran deep in some quarters. It's true the electorate writ large doesn't like either extreme on abortion, but eliminating abortion was more clearly on the ballot this time around, so the vote against it mobilized. I said at the time pro-lifers should give more time to adjust to the new reality. Vast fortresses of institutional power are defeated with patient strategy and persistence. Siege warfare, not all-or-nothing cavalry charges. The GOP needs to get better at changing the electorate. Yes, social engineering. Dems do it all day, every day, without mercy or hesitation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, looking back, just I'll just be self-reflective for a second. Looking back at the messaging I did via the pack that I ran, um, we did a, a pro-life response to Pritzker's you know, everybody, well, Bailey specifically, but Bailey and then everybody else is a pro-abortion extremist. He's going to take away women's rights, choose stuff. The, uh, per, and we focus on pro-notification. You remember right. we had the woman on the show featured in the ad who had been human trafficked. Right. And she, was, she, the, she had argued against rescinding parental notification. She had explained how that is the trafficker's best friend. We explained on the show that's the, the uh, criminal's best friend. Because if you're getting a minor pregnant, you've committed a crime. It's called statutory rape. Um, and the simple idea that, wait, uh, what parent doesn't want to, to know about uh, An invasive their procedure being done on their daughter? Correct. <laughs> Correct. And so and so that's a 75 percent issue our way, parental notification. And so we did it. But I would say I underestimated it as well in terms of doing it faster and perhaps in a more sustained way to communicate that, well, the point you just made, what you have in Illinois is this. This is the legal regime. Abortion on demand, all nine months, taxpayer funded. No parental notification because Pritzker repealed it. So majorities are opposed to repealing parental notification. They're opposed to taxpayer funding. They're opposed to late-term abortions. But as you know, you, you sort of appreciate, there's a lot of people who don't know what the law is, just like how many millions and, and how much airtime do we spend trying to 
explain the Safety Act. And I know right. our listeners probably spend as much time trying to explain it in their social circles as well to people who are incredulous or willfully blind or some combination of the two. So, you know, you can only run so many tracks at one time. You can only do so much education on so many issues in four months. But I think there was an underestimation of people's susceptibility to lies from the pro-abort left about what the law is and what the potential to change it is in places like Illinois. The only thing, as we've said many times on the show, the only thing that's even remotely possible, and that is, you know, if there was a seismic change in the General Assembly, which wasn't coming this year, maybe down the road over time. But the only thing that you're going to do potentially in Illinois is restore parental notification. Right. And that is perhaps years, perhaps more away. But that's not what people bought. That's not and that's not what the left wanted to believe. And they were able to whip, you know, their lobotomized voters into enough of a frenzy to turn out at levels that minimized the enthusiasm, the, the enthusiasm gap that was perceived to be there to the benefit of Republicans coming into the closing weeks of the cycle. All right. Three, one, two, six, four, two, fifty, six hundred. Turnkey. Dot pro answer line. Six, four, six, three, six, D eight. I'll pay. I will. No, during you know the, you at the, at I the will do you the show because I want you to announce. I, I and apologize for even suggesting that Dan Proft would be a welcher. Okay. And that I feel bad about taking this money. I don't feel bad at all. And you're not a welcher and you're going to pay me at seven o'clock. All right. Very good. Um, one other thing just on yes, this, sir. because this is the most depressing election result I have ever seen ever. And it's out of Montana. Montana had a referendum yeah. that requires medical care for infants born alive. Yeah, who survive abortions, right? Require, this is the language in the referendum question, requires medical care to be provided to infants who are born alive, including after an attempted abortion. Uh, 82% reporting, I think it's up to 85 or 86 now, but it's going to lose. No. What? No. They voted against requiring medical care for infants who survive abortions. Right. Wow. Montana? Um, as Los um, Angeles, that's what they're calling it, because all the people from California are moving to Bozeman. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I can't. And I know there's some banter going on, including among conservatives, that the language was confusing and so on and so forth. And so people were confused. Um, The language is not that confusing. And if people were confused, then they're just. Figured out. I I, I mean, that statement I just read you from the ballot is all you really need to read. As, uh, As somebody tweeted out in response to this. You have to imagine at some point Lot would just have looked around and committed himself to going up in flames if God would promise that the fire would indeed come. That's about the reaction I had to that election result. That is the most depressing election result I have ever seen. I'm not talking about this cycle. I'm talking about in my lifetime. And it tells you where we're at. And even if even if what some are saying to try to provide context people were confused and so on and so forth then you better get yourself unconfused the and by the way it's pretty straightforward 
particularly if you understood where this referendum came from, which is from pro-life Republicans and the forces that were allied against it, like the Medical Society, which is a completely left operation right. nationally now. Think, you know, post Obamacare, certainly. Uh, I mean, you're opposed. You're we're all Ralph Northam now. You're right, opposed. Exactly. Yep. An infant is a, a child is there out of the womb and in a cradle. All right. Now we have to have a conversation. What does the law say? I mean, come on. Well, don't you think common sense would kick in and, you know, if they're really a nurse and doctor, they're going to just let the baby die? And they're not. Oh, really? Oh, I shouldn't say that because. Requires medical care to be provided to infants who are born alive, including after an abortion. No. <laughs> Why would it even be in the ballot? Corey and Woodlawn, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, uh, Dan, uh, um, Amy. Uh, you know, I lost uh, respect for these elections. I posted a video on my Facebook page about Ralph, uh, Nadler in 2004 saying that if you want to cheat, the best way to do it is mail-in ballot. Uh, this mail-in ballot <laughs> thing is, to me, just destroying everything. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Corey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joanne Hoffman Estates. Hi. Uh I wanted to tell you that the first time I ever voted, I did research on which president was for abortion. And that's the only reason I voted. And guess who it was? Carter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was really. Now. Yeah, right. And it, well, the thing is, everybody said, well, he's the worst president we ever had. And I never knew what was meant by that until this this one. Okay, this Biden guy. But anyway, um, it is important to women on a visceral level. They don't think about all the rules. And I, I want to thank you for your papers and your, you know, your safety act stuff and everything, because it's obvious that people just don't care. You know, there's so much going on and they just refuse. I have so many friends like abortion is to them a women's right. They think back to the 1800s, honestly, and then they think also back to the safe and legal thing, the legal part and people getting injured by trying to do it themselves for whatever reasons. I am, and I had a friend, okay, a gay man that said, I told him back then, I was pro, I think I'm pro-abortion. He goes, no, you're pro-choice. He schooled me. You know, can't say pro-choice now because you have to be one way or the other. It's pathetic. You're not a woman. If you go to the they, women's march, won't let a woman go. If you're pro, you know life. Yeah. Well, so thanks any- for the call. Thanks for the call, John. I see the uh, the march for life on the mall every year in Washington D.C. And boy, I see a lot of women, a lot of young women. Mm-hmm. But I guess you know you have to have uh, a political movement beyond the pro life movement, like a political party that's willing to take up the issue and articulate these ne- nuances and do intellectual battle against the lies being told by the pro-abortion left. The other thing you have to recognize, perhaps, good observations from a, a, a tweeter who goes under the handle the Mallard Room. Take a, take a listen to this, see if it uh, rings true to you. It does to me. Vast numbers of older Americans wanted the trappings of Norman Rockwell America, but with sexual liberation. Now that their own libidos have cooled, they're voting for the former, but their own actions created new generations that will vote against it. They incoherently wanted this, but with divorce, cohabitation, and free love. 
Their grandkids think this is fascism and want elective mastectomies. Everything's on a continuum. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. And thank you for the money, by the way. I've got it. I did. I paid my bet. I will yep. have the audience know. All right. Thank paid you. my debt to Amy. I won a bet finally. It only took, what, seven years? <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's like, every, it's like uh, you know, once every 70 years, Northwestern Beach, Ohio State. Right. Sort of the same, same kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, ordinarily, prime age men are society's providers. But a steady retreat from the workforce has been underway among this crucial contingent for over a half a century. Today, work rates for prime age American men are actually lower than in 1940 when America's unemployment rate stood at almost 15%. Wow. Um, we've talked about this before, the, the NILFs. NILFs, not MILFs. Excuse NILFs. me, NILFs? NILFs with an N, not in labor force. Uh. At the time of writing, for every unemployed prime-age American man looking for a job, there are more than four neither working nor looking for work. Well, how, how is that going to work that, yeah. for America? For more on this, I was reading from his piece at The Spectator. Pleased to be joined by Nicholas Eberstadt. He's the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Nicholas Eberstadt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan and Amy, thanks for having me on. So the participation rate lower than 1940 when we had a 15% unemployment rate tells me a couple of things. One, that the unemployment rate in modern America is a meaningless statistic. And number two, that we've got a real problem with America's future if there are that many uh, prime-age work, prime-age men not doing something industrious. Well, I guess if you're uh, if you're employed writing uh, writing out the unemployment checks, I guess then <laughs> it's meaningful. Yeah. But basically, we're fighting the last war. We've got this uh, employment statistics system that was devised for following the Great Depression, right? When we assumed that anybody who didn't have a job was in the workforce looking for work, right? Whereas for the last 50 years, we have had this relentless uh, dropout from the workforce by our prime age guys. And it's exactly, as you say, there is nothing good that is coming from this. This means slower economic growth, bigger uh, income and wealth gaps in our country, more pressure on fragile families, less social mobility, more alienation. I mean, this is a kind of an invisible crisis, but for some reason, we've not been looking at it for half a century. So but why so, are they doing it, though? What's, you know, I mean, are some of them staying home to take care of the kids, which I, I can't imagine that being a high number? Yeah, there are about three of them that are doing that. <laughs> yeah, three. Seven All right. No, I know some men that dropped out of the workforce because their wives made more money and they decided yes. to stay home and raise the kids. I've, I know a lot of people no, like that. Oh, point. yeah. No, I mean, they have to be in the dozens nationally. Yeah. 
but but honestly speaking, Amy, I mean, if you look at the at least if you look at what people say, at, at what you know, the surveys of guys who are not in the workforce, why they say that they're not in the workforce, uh, the the smallest reason is saying that they're staying home taking care of other people. It's like two three percent. The next smallest reason is that they couldn't find work. Uh, so there's there's this big pervasive dropout from the labor force that doesn't have to do with the shortage of jobs. And well, we know that right now. I mean, we've got 11 million unfilled jobs in America. We've got you know you walk anywhere and you see people screaming for job applicants. Uh, so what this can't be explained by economic, uh, you know structural change, which is the usual litany in this area. There are other things that are going on, and we, we need to look at those, and I try to do that in this book, Men Without Work, Post-Pandemic Edition. Yeah. Hello? So how is this, um, just looking at, you know, America, but we've been renowned for our work ethic you know, because we, we work in the United States. We clock more hours than Canada, Australia, Western Europe, and now even Japan. Are they suffering the same kind of problem that we are here? That's a really good question. We've got this kind of bifurcated system or, or situation. On the one hand, our workers work longer hours than basically anybody else. But on the other end of the spectrum, we've got more guys who have dropped out of the workforce than any other, proportionately, than any other affluent democracy in the world. And so, uh, so, two, so two things are simultaneously uh, coexisting. One speaks to the remaining very, very strong work ethic, but the other is a completely different situation from what we had in the United States, like let's say two generations ago. And and how what role did COVID and the lockdowns do you think played in this? Well, of course, it was a catastrophe. I mean, over a million people died, but most of the people who died weren't of working age. They weren't that uh, they were much older Americans, and there's still some Americans who uh, are suffering from long COVID and are out of the workforce because of that. Uh, that's probably uh, that's probably a rather small proportion of what we're seeing. Uh, co- the COVID impact was much more from the COVID policies than from the infection. You know, we, uh, we we kind of overshot in trying to rescue the economy from you know collapse and uh, rescue the world economy from a global depression part two. We shot so much money into the workforce through, you know, transfer payments that uh, savings rates actually went up during the uh, 2020 and 2021 period. American savings rates doubled. It's like the only economic crisis in world history where this has happened. And on the basis of that two and a half trillion extra dollars, there are a lot of people who may have um, dropped out of the workforce temporarily. Including including some older workers and uh, and also uh, women. But once that money runs out, do you think that they're going to get back into the workforce, or they've had a taste a of the of good them. life of not working? Well, no, I, th- I think a lot of them, but maybe not all. I would say paradoxically, actually, of the older workers who dropped out, maybe more of them are going to come back because they had the work habits of being in the workforce for you know forty years, thirty years. Um, it's going to be 
it's going to be harder, I think, to get, paradoxically, it's going to be harder to get some of the younger workers back in the workforce, I think. When it comes to um, some of these unemployment stats, then, based on what you're uh, saying, like in Chicago, Illinois has the highest unemployment rate in the nation. It's like 5%, 5.3%. But in Chicago, the black population, it's almost 15%. So what what you're saying is that 15 that you know if it's registering 15% according to labor department stats it's probably a multiple of that particularly among black men absolutely so because uh, there's some you know there's 7 million guys who have dropped out of the workforce and if you've got 7 million people you're going to have some of everything right but some groups are overrepresented african americans are overrepresented in the workforce dropout population. Interestingly enough, Hispanics and Latinos are underrepresented. They're more likely to be in the workforce than the overall national average. So if you look at kind of, um, if you look at the Anglos versus the um, people of color, as the phrase goes these days, those two discrepancies aren't so big. But African-American overrepresented uh, guys with less education overrepresented. And here's an interesting one. Guys who've never been married are way overrepresented. It looks like family structure. It looks like marriage is a big predictor. And so those guys that are uh, overrepresented, particularly um, the single guys, um, how, how, you know, again, I, I know Amy was speaking to this, but how, how are they surviving? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is, is this relying on family? Is relying on the state? Some combination of the two? Trust fund? Illegal activity? Yeah, well, I mean, in, 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 this, in Men Without Work, I go into that and I try to show that it, actually it seems to be kind of uh, two factors. Girlfriends and family, if you include Uncle Sam as part of the family. So it is, it is help from people, uh, people that uh, they know. But it's also uh, disability programs. Mm-hmm. Our disability archipelago, we've got this kind of crazy quilt of different disability systems that don't talk to each other in the United States. But they do not allow you to have a princely lifestyle, but they do allow you enough money to kind of uh, engage in a non-work uh, lifestyle. Right. And so um, it's interesting, too, you talk about um, the less educated, um, and and that's that. That's a phrase that's uh, may have some um, confusing implications because you can be less educated, don't have a college degree, but I went through an apprentice program, so I'm educated in the profession that I'm pursuing, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. you know I'm productive. So you know that that can be a bit of a charged phrase, but I mean it it was we were pre-pandemic talking about this idea that you know with the rise of uh, the digital age. You're, it's going to be more and more difficult to make a living with your brawn. You've got to be able to use your brain, too, even in the trades. And I'm, I'm sure that's still the case, but I wonder how that is being uh, – how that's manifesting itself when you're looking at the landscape of who's in and who's out of work. Yeah. Well, if you – the the group that's been uh, the group that's had the hardest time uh, the guys who have no high school degrees the lowest educational attainment group I and mean, that's that always shows up this way um, but I've got to qualify that because first of all uh, in this in this world we've entered into in post pandemic America there are millions and millions of job openings for applicants 
whose only qualification or skill would be showing up on time every day, regularly, drug-free. So not the highest of skill qualifications. And the second is, if you look at the uh, at the guys who are high school dropouts and uh, also work, uh, you know, their, their labor force participation, it's not a homogeneous picture. On the one hand, the guys who are uh, the guys who are foreign born and married have workforce participation profiles that look like college grads in the United States. On the other hand. If you're born in the United States, high school dropout, never married, you don't even have a 50% chance of being in the labor force. That is a group that's in a world of hurt. And and you see that you see that group in a world of hurt, and they do things like self-medicate and other uh, other. I mean, that's the group that disproportionately you you see with uh, uh, substance abuse problems and other uh, you know other uh, deleterious conditions. Exactly there, and one of the one of the most uh, dispiriting things I found in doing this uh, book uh, was looking at what people who were guys who were labor force dropouts said that they did with their time, you know, from waking up to going to sleep. We've got these great big national studies, time use studies, and if you look at the prime age men who were workforce dropout. They say they basically don't do civil society, almost no worship or volunteering or charity. They've got a lot of time on their hands, but they report that they do very little help around the house, either with other people or with you know household chores. What they say they do is watch screens, and they say they watch screens for like 2,000 hours a year on average. Now, that's the equivalent of a full-time job. Um, and some of these surveys have asked people whether they take pain medication. Uh, one that did that before the pandemic, uh, almost half of the workforce dropout guys said that they were taking pain medication every day. So it's not just staying at home all the time, you know, playing, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, Call of Duty. Uh, it's playing Call of Duty stoned. And that is a, you know, that is a terrible waste of human potential it's kind of like a prep course for depths of despair it looks like and and the and the response seems to be more state support rather than maybe going back to a simpler time when mom and dad and now mom or dad you know shames them and beats them out of the house to go do something productive i i, I, I is there another way other than sort of at the micro level individual families and friend circles to demand more of these men? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the word shame because, you know, we live in a kind of a world where people say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, judge. But I think that stigma is kind of like kinder and gentler than, you know, than the police state in kind of helping helping enforce norms in uh, in a society and, you know, kind of reinforcing the um, importance of work, not for the economy, but for the people involved. You know, it helps complete them. It's a service to, it's a service to others. It helps complete you, as anybody who's had a you know long-term job knows. So certainly, uh, certainly, this public square part of it is really important. The government can probably do a couple of things, or or stop doing a couple of things. Uh, more, 
you were mentioning, vocational training, more skills uh, being trained, uh, you know, not through college, uh, would be really important given the uh, parlous state of so many of our uh, K through uh, 12 public schools. Um, reforming our disability system to kind of uh, instill a work first principle uh, instead of the awful kind of dependence that we have now in the archipelago, that would be pretty good. And there's one big problem that's hiding in plain sight, which is all of the ex-cons in America. Yeah. I mean, I was astonished by this in doing my book. Um, there, are pro- there are probably about 25 million uh, people in the United States today who have a felony in their background. And only 2 million of them are behind bars at the moment, which means that 10 times as many are in society as a whole. Maybe one in seven adult men has a felony conviction in his background, and it's probably a higher proportion than that for uh, prime-age working population. So we can't do anything like... Um, uh, evidence-based policies for re-entry into society and into the economy and so forth if we don't have the evidence. But for some reason, uh, you know, the same government statistics system that's built on you know, uh, Depression-era mentality for employment statistics doesn't even collect information about this. Really interesting. Nicholas Eberstadt, Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enter- Enterprise Institute. Check out his piece at Spectator, uh, A Nation of Quitters. Nicholas Eberstadt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You know, as we're on the eve of Veterans Day, maybe it's a time to do a little stop, look, and listen in terms of where we are with providing services to veterans that we promised to provide, particularly as it pertains to the VA. We've had so many problems with the VA here at the state level in Illinois. The Legionnaires outbreak several years ago that claimed the lives of a number of veterans. The COVID killed 36 uh, at the LaSalle Veterans Home. And, you know, in both instances, uh, I don't think it's arguable to say that the state was lethargic in its response. And, of course, it, you go back uh towards, uh, you know, go back about a decade, and you had that scandal in the VA writ large where there were hundreds of thousands of veterans who were not getting timely treatment, who died waiting for timely treatment for their various ailments. And so I just wonder, you know, it sort of it bubbles up to the surface when there's a scandal and then it recedes and we don't think about it. So what is the status of the kind of care and service veterans are getting in Illinois and in America today? To help us with this question and uh, talk about some other matters, pleased to be joined by Ben Kessling, who is a uh, uh, was uh, left the service as a Marine captain. He's a, also the Midwest correspondent with the Wall Street Journal and the Chicago Bureau, where he focuses on domestic security and veterans issues. He has a new book, Bravo Company, an Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. Ben Kessling, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
So uh, what about uh, veterans' homes and the VA and the quality of service veterans are receiving today in real time? Is is this something that uh, that you're uh, on top of in your reporting? Well, I, for the Wall Street Journal, I keep an eye on uh, what's happening at the VA and, and across the country with veterans because, you know, a lot of Americans don't realize that the VA is, the, you know, the second largest de- uh, department in the federal government. And uh, there's a lot of our taxpayer money that goes into that. And there's a lot of services that are provided to veterans. And, you know, it's it's interesting when you talk about the errors that um, that are shown at the VA. I mean, there are, um, percentage-wise, uh, relatively few errors that occur. But what happens is every single one of those errors is catastrophic to a family, to a veteran. And that's why... Um, every single time something goes something goes south at the VA, it's so important for us to look at it, learn from it, and then press our lawmakers and the government to um, to, to do a better job with it. In your book, a Bravo Company, it's sort of interesting. Um, you uh, you follow a uh, combat uh, parachute infantry regiment in the 82nd Airborne, um, not just their time in theater, which was. Uh, which was devastating, and I'll let you recount that. But also for those men who made it back, what happened and the approach that was taken to deal with the uh, uh, the, the aftermath of the war that so many struggled to cope with. Right. So uh, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a I'm a Marine veteran myself. Uh, I was a Marine, Marine infantryman, and I found this group of, uh, of Army paratroopers about a decade after they deployed to Afghanistan. They deployed in 2009 and 2010, uh, and I came. I, I found them because they were doing a they were doing a reunion called Operation Resiliency. So they came together um, as a full group because oftentimes when we get out of the service, the the, the VA and it's not. I mean, this is not. You know, this is not a specifically a VA fault or something. It's just kind of the nature of getting out of service is veterans float through the system almost as individuals. And sometimes we forget that we were part of a team when we deployed. We were part of a team when we were with the military. And so the VA and the Veteran Service Organization brought Bravo Company back together 10 years after the deployment to see if reconstituting that team could help with some of the issues with suicide, um, suicidal ideations, and some of the some of the issues these men were having. And uh, since then, they've had zero suicides, um, wow. uh, you know, uh, thank God. But uh, but I met these I met these men. Um, they were all men because it was 2009 when they deployed. Um, I met them, uh, you know, like I said, 10 years after they deployed. They went to a place in, Afga- in Afghanistan called the Argandab Valley. And anyone who's a veteran or, or knows Afghanistan knows that the Argandab Valley is notorious um, for a, a Taliban stronghold in a place that's been very difficult for American troops and, uh, and our allies, like the Canadians, the Brits, uh, to fight in. And uh, these men, they didn't, fi- get in, they didn't get into a lot of firefights while they were down there. They didn't see the Taliban eye to eye. What they saw were IEDs buried in the ground. Mm-hmm. And their deployment was essentially... Uh, months of walking through underbrush, pomegranate orchards, canals, and just hoping that today wasn't the day that they or their buddy would find an IED with their foot rather than finding it with a metal detector. And that was the harrowing deployment that they went through. And how many of the people in the company made it back here? Well, the three three men died on the deployment, um, and I talk about them in, in the book and the, the ways that they died. Um, and I do so in a way that is... Um, um, it's, it's graphic, um, but it's not graphic in a way to make 
um, to make your stomach turn uh, or to sort of get cheap thrills. It's graphic because it's I try to make it as real as possible. So if you've not been to if you've not been to combat, if you're um, if you're a civilian, you can see and smell and hear and feel what it's like um, to be in combat. To lose a friend to to an IED, and some of the men I talk to when they lose they lose limbs themselves and describe it. Um, but I talk about that in a way that just brings it brings the reality of it um, home, uh, but not in a way that's meant to be you know disgusting or tawdry or something. Um, and uh, so three of them three of them died. Um, about a dozen lost limbs of some sort, and um, nearly half the company um, ended up with purple hearts for. Oh being close to explosions, um, you know, and, and that doesn't even count the people who, um, who got traumatic brain injury for maybe being close to an explosion, getting concussion. Um, you know, those, th- those men and women are service. Uh, a lot of times they don't get purple hearts that doesn't get recorded in their record book. You know, if you're close to an IED and it goes off, it rings your bell. Hey, that's just something that happened. And decades later, you know, we were talking about the VA sometimes, those injuries, um, they linger and they don't come out for, for years, for decades after, after service. And it's something that we need to be, we need to do a better job of. And it's something that the VA is trying to do a better job of tackling. Well, and then this is, uh, sort of a, uh, highly correlative to the, to the fact that, uh, veterans have a 50% higher suicide rate than their peers who have not served. Um, and, and, and so I wonder, you know, based on this, um, this novel approach the VA took with this Bravo company, is this approach of, of treating the, the, the guys as a team, is this now going to be replicated and scaled if it's showing that kind of promise like you were describing? It's still in sort of nascent form uh, as far as whether or not the VA is going to make this make this widespread. And it's, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, you know, when we make when we talk about VA policy, um, it, it can be very difficult to, to make the things that are designed in state legislatures or what we may think are best practices to sort of have the rubber hit the road, as it were. I mean, uh, even if even if the VA made this a widespread practice of bringing units together, there's still an issue with do units do they even do they even follow each other once they get out? I mean, there's not yeah. some sort of master roster, right? Like when you leave when you leave a unit, that unit, it. it it sort of disintegrates in some way, right? Like as soon right, as you get but, back from combat, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I know, I, of course, I see, you know, people live their own lives. They go their own ways. They do different things. They're in different places. Right, I get right. that. But, I mean, I think if, if you – I mean, this is why you're uh, – one of the reasons why your book is so interesting. If more people knew about this and, and what happened with Bravo Company and this, this effort to bring people together and the impact it had on the men, then maybe say, you know what? I, I haven't reached out to some of the guys that I served with. I wonder – I wonder how they're doing, and you know maybe it it takes it spurs people to say, well, if this is an approach that uh, that works, then maybe I take it upon myself to reconnect and and do some things as a team to try to help out anybody who is struggling right now. No, I think that that's absolutely right. Uh, one of the one of the men from the book, Tyler Kohler, um, he lives in uh, he lives in Illinois, and. Um, you know, he when he, he got out of the military and he felt like he was just bumped around and doesn't wasn't able to sort of have the same meaning and purpose that he had when he was in the army. And after the reunion, you know, he's really put some thought into maybe moving to a place that's closer to where the bulk of, uh, of these men live. A lot of these men live in North Carolina. You know, he thought, hey, maybe if I move out there, I can sort of replicate that team and have 
you know, have the ability to, to get a leg up on things by, by again, being around my brothers. And I think that it's so important, as you said, to, to read, um, to read about uh, how this reunion has helped these men in, in the book Bravo company um, and, and say, Hey, uh, you know, we are a brother's keeper. It's our job to get a hold of, of, of the men and women who we served with and to check on them. Um, and I think that, you know, you talked about VA policy. Yeah. Um, the idea of paying for paying for a military reunion, maybe like seem seem kind of weird for uh, for for folks who are footing the bill for this. Be like, wait, why are we going to pay for a bunch of guys to come together and have a good time for on a weekend or something? But you know, we dump a lot of money into things like suicide hotlines, which mm-hmm. um, sometimes work, sometimes don't. We dump a lot of money into therapy sessions for 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 men and women who have been in uniform. I mean, what if something like a reunion? Uh, actually did the, did the trick and, and, and helped these people, um, you know, me and you and everybody who's, who's been out there and served, help them uh, readjust and, and, and do a better job of finding meaning with their lives. I mean, yeah, I, there's, I, I agree. That <laughs> is a great idea. You got to get the band back together. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think there'd be too many people opposed to, you know, with given all the things we spend <laughs> right. money on spending money on, on anything that works to improve the, the lives of veterans, particularly those struggling. Um, so you, you served, uh, you, you had saw time in Iraq and Afghanistan in, 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 That's right. combat, in combat, right? That's correct. Yeah, I was a, I was a platoon commander um, with 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines in Fallujah in 2007. And then uh, I was in Afghanistan and southern Afghanistan um, working with, um, with the Afghan uh, National Army after that. So I've, I've been to both Iraq and Afghanistan. How, how do you look back on, on your service? I look back on my service, I think, in ways that a lot of the men and women that I've, I mean, I've been covering veterans for 10 years now and the military and the Pentagon. And now I've written a book about these, about, about men and women who have served. And I, my feeling on it, I think, is the same as a lot of men and women who serve, which is the strategic level stuff, all the stuff that makes headlines and that we talk about in, in the fall of Afghanistan and fall of Kabul, all that stuff is not really what men and women who have been there focus on. They focus on what they were able to do with their small unit and the men and women to their left and right and whether they did an honorable and good job while they were there. And that's, I mean, a lot of ways, that's the way I reflect back on my service um, and the way that the men, the men of Bravo Company look back on it. You know, I, I talked to, talk to them when, uh, when Afghanistan, when Afghanistan, when Kabul fell and Afghanistan turned back over to Taliban control, one of the men from Bravo Company, his name's Sergeant Alex Hargi, and Alex, um, he lost his legs on uh, on a subsequent deployment to Afghanistan. And uh, when I talked to him about the fall of Afghanistan, he said, "Hey, man, you know, peace comes. It's not like we expected we expected to be any different. We knew this was going to come." But the way that it happened was something that really bothered a lot of veterans and almost to a man and to a woman for folks I talked to about the way Afghanistan ended just didn't didn't seem right. It didn't sit right with a lot yeah. of us. Uh, oh, it should have. Yeah. It's you know, it's it's just unfortunate, <laughs> I guess, is the understated word to say that um, it's, it's unfortunate that 20 years after war and all all that was done there um, that it seemed to unravel so quickly at the end. Now, you wrote a great article in the Wall Street Journal. I thought I was done with Iraq, then a fellow Marine's purple heart turned up at auction. Can you explain that? um, Yeah, I wrote that last year, and this was sort of, um, this is uh, an example of of trying to stay in touch with your buddies and uh, to to make sure that you remain part of uh, their lives. Um, In Fallujah in 2007, my company, golf company with two six Marines, 
had one combat um, combat death, and that was um, Walter O'Hare. Walter O'Hare was shot by a sniper when he was in an overwatch position um, and died. And um, about 10 years after that deployment, um, through a series of misfortunes, his family, um, there was a house fire, um, the death of his mother, um, his Purple Heart, his posthumously awarded Purple Heart, um, ended up on an online auction site. Mm. <laughs> and a bunch of men from, uh, from his unit tried to get it back, and then they contacted me to see if I could help. And the story that you mentioned in the Wall Street Journal is sort of this, uh, a story that talks about the ways in which uh, the ways in which men uh, men who have served with each other can come back and uh, and help each other and help families that have fallen, and we got the purple back purple heart back for the family through a series of both um, um, temporal and metaphysical interventions uh, because <laughs> the, uh, the things like uh, things like uh, military medals have an odd have an odd power and odd aura to them, and they will find the way to get to where they want to be. And that story is. Uh, um, that story is how how we got the, those medals back to to his family and returned them to him where they where they rightfully belong. All right, um, I know what your favorite book is in Afghanistan. That would be Bravo Company. I got that. Um, but um, but you know, and because so many people, I mean, who consume you know uh, war movies as well as uh, books related to war. Um, mm-hmm. What what I, maybe you don't consume them? I don't know. But um, I've got one. But what what's your favorite movie about? Uh, Afghanistan or Iraq? What do you think mostly, most accurately conveys what it was like to serve there? Well, um, I'm going to kind of go uh, on, a, on a side, uh, you know, side note on this and say Full Metal Jacket has always been <laughs> okay. the, the movie that I like. And I want to tell you why. And I think it's important is that anything that we do like in, in combat, there's this weird mix, right? Where the, the, um, the very earthly and the sort of the spiritual dwell together, the uh-huh. horrific and the hilarious. They, they, they sit side by side, as do myth and reality, right? Uh, and any war story is like a fishing story, right? Uh, it, can, it can grow and change and, and, and adapt. And I think that Full Metal Jacket is uh, one of those things that there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of reality and realness in, in the experience of, of boot camp and then deployment that's in that movie. But of course, it's... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a movie. It's uh it's, right. it's fake. Um, All right. Well, but Stan- I think that that's Stan- important. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick gets the nod. I got it. Okay. Very good. Yeah, yeah. What's your, what's yours? What's your, oh, yeah, uh, well, about, well, about Afghanistan specifically, it was almost a documentary. I just thought the interaction and some of what you're talking about, but the interaction between the men was the focus. Restrepo. Did you see Restrepo? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. That would, that would be mine. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. We got two movie Another movie to add to the it. list. Yes. Yeah, right. Ben Kessling, <laughs> Midwest correspondent with the Wall Street Journal and the Chicago Bureau, where he focuses on domestic security and veterans issues. His book, Pick It Up, Bravo Company, an Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. And happy birthday to the U.S. Marine Corps today. No, there you go. Right. There you go. 11, 10. All right. Thank you so much. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560. The answer.
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Mr. 10%, uh, big guy. President Biden had his uh, post-midterm presser yesterday where he took uh, a relatively wide range of questions from the comm shop that so dutifully serves him that pretends to be the fourth estate in D.C. And a lot of people focus on uh, nothing will change. You know, I didn't learn anything from the outcomes of the uh, primary election. I mean, from the midterm election, I should say. Um, but uh, I thought these two questions were rather interesting. Not whether he's going to run again. The question about Elon Musk and the question about Hunter. So the Elon Musk question, right? The Elon Musk question was, uh, well, was this. The is worthy of being looked at whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate i'm not suggesting that i'm suggesting that it worth worth being looked at um and uh the question was is elon musk a threat to national security and he, you heard what he just said he said it's worth being looked at 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line 64636 type in da then a quick comment now the question as to the possibility of him and his family, most notably Hunter, being investigated by a majority a House Republicans now in the a, a, a Republicans now in the majority in the House. She said this. They may even want to investigate your son. What's your message to Republicans who are considering investigating your family and particularly your son Hunter's business dealings? Lots of luck in your senior year, as my coach used to say. It's just the, I'm almost comedy. I mean. It's almost comedy. Lots of luck in your senior year, as my fictional coach used to say. Uh, Elon Musk deserves to be looked at, uh, but lots of luck if you want to come after me and my family. I, it's a, sort of an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Elon Musk needs to be looked at by who and for what? He said well, his relationship with foreign governments. Oh, oh, really? Oh, and and Hunter Biden's forays in Ukraine and China, just to name but two, that is good luck in your senior year. It borders on comedy. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey dot Pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey dot Pro text line. Is well, this, because if they look, oh sorry. Well, is this President Biden sending a message to Elon Musk now that he's had honcho at Twitter that uh, you know? I'd hate to see the federal government take an interest in all of your business dealings the, the world over and create a real hassle for you. Is this more weaponization of the machinery of the state against the richest, in this case, the richest man in the world, the same way he weaponizes the machinery of the state against parents who show up to complain at school board meetings? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't want Elon Musk to allow certain people to have their platforms back. President Trump, I'm sure they don't want him to go back on Twitter. And they want to try and control him and bully him. And, and as for Hunter and the laptop, I mean, going after Hunter and looking into Hunter would be looking into him and his nefarious behavior and all of that. Well, of course. And by the way, I mean, looking into Elon Musk, well, like you mean the same Elon Musk. And, you know, and I have mixed views on Elon Musk, but let's let's be honest about what we know. The same Elon Musk that's allowing the Ukrainians to use his uh, Starlink satellite services to communicate. That's the bad guy. But the. The the Hunter Biden uh, and his time in the employ of Burisma 
under the uh, stewardship of Ukrainian oligarchs, that's not worth looking at. Uh, oh, he can dismiss it. He can dismiss it. And if the Republicans, if they, if they assuming they are in the majority of the House, which I'm assuming, if they don't pursue an investigation based on what w- we know or at least what has been alleged by former Hunter Biden business partner Tony Bobolinsky about meetings with Joe Biden, about the whole operation of the Biden family as a as a corporation with Joe Biden being the silent partner or the uh, never-to-be-seen board chairman. Combined with this, this came out this week. Of course, the midterm elections overshadowed it. <laughs> yeah. I don't even there, know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, but there's a whistleblower. There's another whistleblower. This person isn't been named, but there's a whistleblower who came forward saying he has direct knowledge of Joe Biden's involvement in Hunter's foreign business deals while serving as vice president. The informant says that he was on a 2012 conference call involving the big guy, Mr. 10 percent. That would be Joe Biden. 2012. Then he was vice president. Joe Biden, Hunter, his business partner, Jeff Cooper, late Senator Harry Reid and his son, Key Reid. The call was about Hunter, Key and Jeff Cooper's new venture into online gambling in Latin America. And the source says Joe was active on the call. The whistleblower claims Joe discussed details of the business and appeared to be involved as... What else? Mr. 10 percent. Leave 10 percent aside for the big guy involved as a silent partner. Quoting the whistleblower, with direct observations I had, it's obvious Joe was participating in the business. He wasn't passive. He was talking about it. If I had to describe him, he was like a member of the board of directors. The whistleblower has identified himself, I'm assuming it's a him, to Senate investigators, but asked to remain anonymous for fear of reprisal. The only person to respond to this allegation by the whistleblower was uh, Hunter Biden's business partner, Jeff Cooper, who called the claims a complete fabrication. The other participants, including Team Biden, did not respond to inquiries by the Daily Mail on the topic. Not to mention what's laid out in Peter Schweitzer's book, Secret Empires, about the Biden family. And that would include brother Biden, too, uh, in Central America, now this new thing about an online gambling venture in Latin America. Obviously, the uh, mo- the private equity fund that the Chicoms poured millions of dollars in, Hunter Biden a part of that, and I mentioned Ukraine, and that's just scratching the surface. It, 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 and not to mention the status of this alleged FBI investigation into Hunter Biden's laptop after the agent in charge was accused by whistleblowers who came forward to Chuck Grassley in the Senate and said this Tom Tebow was running interference to try to kill the investigation. And that guy has since quietly retired from the FBI when those allegations by whistleblowers came to light. But no, there's nothing to see here. Certainly nothing to investigate. But Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think people Who are these people? People should take a look at his relationships with foreign countries. My son, my kleptocratic family operation, no. Good luck in your senior year. Okay. That sort of reminds me of Jesse Jackson's challenge to Patrick Fitzgerald to bring it on. The House Republicans better bring it on. Andrew in Portage, Indiana, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. I got a question. Why is Elon Musk the enemy, but Mark Zuckerberg isn't when he fires... What, 1,000 people? Yeah, double standards there, I guess. Uh, 
when it comes to the right. Um, I don't quite understand, but uh, it's kind of crazy how we got our stuff or through what they're they're giving us every day. So you guys have a good morning, okay? Thanks Bye. for the call, Andrew. Yeah, 11,000 people being laid off of Meta. Yep. Um, and, you know, how many ever thousands of people laid off from Twitter? They don't have nearly that many employees. But, uh, but I don't think it's about the layoffs, right? It's about Elon Musk's cultural impact via Twitter right? and, and the, the rules of, of what is and is not allowed on Twitter. That's, That's more of a rub. concern. Not to mention Elon Musk, you know, sort of generically endorsing Republicans in the midterm. Bingo. Yep. So it's fresh in Joe Biden's mind. And, you know, maybe he wants a little retribution, not to mention Elon Musk is a great misdirection play away from his family. John in Libertyville. Good morning, Amy and Dan. Dan, I just want to thank you for all you did in the election. I know, Amy, you also do a lot behind the scenes. I think people shouldn't be cutting and running from Illinois, like a lot of people are saying right now. Also, in regards to Elon Musk, uh, he's a threat to Democrat security, so they got to look into him. Um, the floodgates have been opening up. I know your Twitter has been doing better, and so is Amy's. Um, but the reason I want to call is I think people need to get back in the fight in Illinois and not give up. Um, so if people want to call, why? why? Yeah. My family's been here for eight generations. Um, and I'm not just going to cut and run because some fat little pushy tyrant with a lisp is, uh, <laughs> going to raise my taxes. I, I think here's the thing, Dan, in 2010, when Rauner won, there was one thing that was different than this time around. There was an actual Senate campaign going. Right now we had a non-existent, a non-existent campaign, plus we're not running in a lot of state rep and state Senate campaigns. Those add up to the bigger picture. I don't think you can just blame voters or that you know all the sensible people left. I okay. think we need to have a broader campaign throughout the whole state, and, it, and it's all those little races add up to the big race. Yeah, all right. Thanks for the call, John. Well, I mean, on, on Illinois, just to go on that tangent, you know, I mean, I, I was uh, a member of the philosophical camp, why should I leave? They're the ones who suck for a long time, you know, that they should leave, not I should leave, and we should figure out a way to push them out, at least of office, if not the state. Um, but, you know, with so much on the line and with, as you talked about, the record of that, uh, the governor who was reelected and to have a such a uh, a downturn in turnout. I mean, it was down more than 20 percent in Lake County, you know, where John is in Libertyville. Um, you know, so there was an opportunity and you didn't have center-right voters seize that opportunity in uh, Chicagoland or downstate. And so one is left to wonder, you know, is it in fact, which I have openly, and I'm still wondering, there's a lot of additional analysis that needs to be done. Are there too few sensible people left? And among those too few left, too few who are motivated. And if it's just an issue of motivation, not an issue of too few, then what does it take to motivate? And I think it's fair to say, yeah, the Republican Party in the state needs to do a better job of leading on public policy issues, of making arguments, of taking up fights, 
of recruiting and developing candidates, of working in concert with one another, none of which happens right now, and it hasn't been happening for a long time, which is why Durkin's departure is welcome but long overdue. I think Dan McConkey in the Senate is also going to be removed and replaced. That doesn't necessarily mean it gets better in either chamber, and it's not all going to be up to the House and Senate super minority leaders either. So I think one of the conversations is perpetual campaign mode. It's a combination of both the relentless messaging that the Democrats do and building some of the machinery that they have, and, and frankly, they have a little bit more of, a, of, a, of, of an advantage, of an intrinsic advantage when doing things like vote-by-mail programs. So, right, I mean, it's a, as we've had many of these over many cycles now, uh, it's an opportunity, if you want to look at it in the light most positive, to do a complete reassessment and a complete rebuild from the ground up. And we'll see what kind of appetite there is for that. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the appetite is. And I also, I'm, I'm raising the issue based on results of whether there are too few sensible people and among those too few that who are motivated. I don't know that, but the numbers would seem to support that thesis and that thesis needs to be tested. And the question is, is there, again, is there, are there enough people willing, including in you know, technical leadership positions in the party, to do that kind of sober analysis, assessment, uh, and chart a different course? I don't know. I don't know. But if we don't, then you can guarantee that what happened on Tuesday night in Illinois will be what happens again and again for many election cycles to come. Dave in Ravenswood. Yeah, I think it's just telling that the Democrats are focused on preserving their power. It's obvious if they're concerned more about how the terms and conditions of Twitter might change versus China buying you know, farmland near military bases or Hunter Biden. Clearly, they just don't think those two things are a threat to their power, whereas you know, speech being able to wander outside of their preferred talking points is. Exactly right. Exactly. Thanks, Dave. Kevin, Austin, Texas. Uh, Dan, Amy, thank you for everything you've done in the last couple of years. I feel like I listen to Radio Free Illinois. Uh, <laughs> sort of, yeah. Uh, one thing I hope you'll encourage people to do as far as rebuilding the Republican Party from the ground up and the inside out is there's a guy out there, Dan Schultz. He talks about precinct strategy. Because if I think people understood the mechanics of becoming a precinct captain, uh, as they call it in Chicago, um, just how that works. It's not that difficult. It's just a few hours a, uh, a month of your time. It doesn't require money. Um, but I think that's part of building up the mechanics. There, it, It's exactly, it's the get-out-the-vote machinery that the Republican Party doesn't have. A lot of people are willing, a lot of people nod and agree with you, and I've called about that last over the last two years. And that's why I would call in and say, hey, what's somebody to do? So it'll give you opportunities to talk about it. But I think if you push that idea, there are people who are just involved in a conservative movement in Illinois that actually did, I believe, pull the, put the, uh, uh, the, the right a little bit more, move the ball to the right. And I think if you engage those people to stay involved, 
uh, and, and to pursue that idea, I think you can build the Republican Party, and it's going to be like-minded or fellow travelers, as you like to say. Well, I hope you push that idea. Thanks for the call, Kevin. Appreciate it. Here's the thing, though. It, it's not just having a competitive vote-by-mail program, though. This is the tough part that, that people don't want to address because it's, it's difficult. There's not a, a light switch that can be flipped. Uh, to borrow from von Mises, he who, need, who, he who wants to improve conditions must propagate a new mentality, not merely a new institution. So it's not just the machinery of campaigns. It's also a new mentality. And I got to tell you, what I see and what the numbers suggest yeah. is a lot of people that are, just will not speak up in the face of the leftist mobs. They will not act against the leftist mob. They are afraid or they're fatalistic and they use their fatalism as a cover for their fear. And until and unless you have more people who know better exhibit the courage to demand better, and I mean demand better publicly, (laughs) not quietly in the safe confines of your den, I mean out in the public square, then you will have the mob continue to roll over people because people are sitting there waiting to be rolled over. So it's both. Yes, it is some campaign infrastructure, but it's a, a mentality a fatalistic, uh, fearful mentality that pervades the Republican Party in this state that needs to change. And if it doesn't change, you can have the best consultants in the world and all the vote-by-mail programs you want, and you're not going to win. Mike in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Good morning. Uh, Great to speak to you again. I, I read a piece about 10 years ago, I think it was Daniel Greenberg, and he was speaking on how Americans in general have stopped thinking. They don't think about what they do. They emote on it. And we, I see it with a – I've got a college senior in electrical engineering. He's a straight-A student. He wasn't raised that way. He was raised to make decisions and decide based upon facts. What we have is people who want what they want, even though it, they know it's not possible to grow wings and fly. The, the Democrats tell them they can, and they believe it. Thanks for the call, Mike. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, the big guy, Mr. 10%, Joe Biden, we were just talking about. uh, I referenced what he said, but let's hear it again because we want to get our friend Michael Goodwin's reaction. Uh, Lessons learned from the midterm election results stay the course. You mentioned that uh, Americans are frustrated, and in fact, 75% of voters say the country is heading into the wrong direction despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. What? Yeah. It's, it's you know, that's 75% uh, people that think the uh, country's on the wrong track. They just, uh, 
haven't felt all of the beneficial impacts of Biden policy yet. And uh, once they do, things are going to be hunky-dory. For more on this, Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. So, um, I mean, he won't be able to stay the course with uh, the Republicans in control of the House, but uh, rhetorically and in terms of what's proposed, uh, don't expect any changes. It's a rather stunning thing to say, right, that, uh, as you put it, uh, 75 percent of the people are wrong. Right? They don't know better. Uh, you know, this is this is unfortunately what I think. Too much of our politics, especially on the left, has come to that if you don't agree with me, you're either ignorant or corrupt. Um, and that's the heart of cancel culture. We, we will not let you speak if you don't agree. And so I think that uh, this has clearly crept into the White House and clearly now part of Joe Biden's agenda, which is we'll just keep plowing the same line and people will come around. Uh, I don't think that's a very smart formula. I don't think it's appealing. It, it's an insult, frankly. Uh, and yet, I guess reading what happened on election night, he took from that that it was good enough, that they had hung on, uh, and therefore, why change? Uh, I think it also, frankly, has something to do with his age. Uh, we know that... Uh, when you get to be approaching 80 years old, change is not something you generally embrace. Uh, and I, I don't think the many in the party actually feel that it's good enough. And there's a lot of infighting in the party. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in the House, assuming that uh, Kevin McCarthy or some other Republican becomes a speaker. What, what's the scramble on the, among the Democratic side for the minority leader? Uh, and all the positions that go with that. And look, I think you're going to see if that happens um, and there are no great prospects, you're going to see a wave of Democrats announcing their retirement sometime in the in the next year or so because they don't want to be in the minority party. It's no fun, particularly in the House, being in the minority party because you don't get anything. I mean, at least in the Senate, there's a little bit of respect. You get some questions and all of that. But the way the polarization has set in is that if you're in the minority party, you're, you're expected to uh, shut up and vote yes. And if you don't vote yes, you still have to shut up. Well, do you think Nancy Pelosi will be part of that retirement crew? I do. Um, I, I think that given, look, once you're out of power, it, it, it's a big step down. And it can't it can't be fun. It can't be rewarding. Nobody listens to you. You know, the press doesn't show up to your press conferences. So and she's also, of course, uh, got the problem now with her husband. I mean, he's had two incidents uh, lately, uh, one, the drunk driving and then the attack. I mean, I, you know, she's she's not, uh, as we say, either a spring chicken. So I don't see the point in her sticking around Washington, at, at, you know, if there's no real power to it. If, if a younger generation is trying to push her out, what is she holding on for? And the uh, braggadocia we heard from Biden about running again in 2024. I mean, I, of course, he has to say that he's not going to announce he's a lame duck. But and I assume because of the results were better than anticipated, that there'll be a grace period for him. But if the country continues in recession into 
the winter and spring of next year, then I assume we're going to see the those who have an interest, the Newsoms and the Pritzkers, maybe Jared Polis's of the world, start to at least maneuver behind the scenes to uh, to position for the nomination in 24. I think that's right. I, you know, my my thought before the election was that if it really was a red wave, um, we would see a couple of things happen, and we still may see the first, and that is there will be a, a settlement of the Hunter Biden case. That uh, they, uh, Joe Biden cannot have it that it's out there and the Republicans are investigating him. It's it's really not about Hunter anymore. It's about Joe. That is clearly what Ron Johnson and Chuck uh, Grassley in the Senate, yeah. Jim Jordan and others in the House, they have figured this out now. This is, uh, as I wrote uh, about 10 days ago now, Tony Bobolinsky, the partner in that, has concluded that this was a Chinese intelligence operation to infiltrate the Biden family. It's not just a matter of businesses. It's that these businesses were working on behalf of the government and that this was a real intel operation. And Bobolinsky thinks that eventually the FBI will come to that conclusion. He's got a little more confidence in the FBI than I do. But I think Joe Biden cannot tolerate that. So we may still see, before the, the new Congress convenes, we may still see a settlement of the Hunter Biden case. The other thing I thought would happen— Yeah, but, but, but wait, there, hold on, because hold, hold, that's so important. The, the settlement— why would the Republicans agree to any settlement on that case if, if Biden is implicated and not just for financial uh, self-dealing, but also uh, as a dupe for as a dupe in a Chinese intel operation? I would think the Republicans would want to push that and explore all the nooks and crannies and possibly I mean, I, I don't want to I hate to bring it up, but I don't hate it that much and possibly look at impeachment. Well, uh, I don't think the Republicans would have a say in it. That's the issue, that Merrick Garland would shut it down. Uh, Merrick Garland was never going to let this case become about Joe Biden. Somehow or other, he was going to limit it. I mean, just think about it. They've had the, the FBI's had the laptop since 2019. Yes. Um, they are clearly not interested in investigating the big guy. Uh, they have decided they were going to cut this case off. There's been all these negotiations, lots of reports that they offered Hunter various plea deals. He turned it down, some of them involving felonies. Uh, I think there will be some resolution, whether it's he takes a plea or whether it's just a civil settlement. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he, I'm sure they're negotiating that now. I just think that Joe Biden does not want that to be an open case when the Republicans are in control of one or both houses. Um, well, they, well so that's but, why but, they, but, the Republicans will not have a say in it. They but, may still be able to investigate, yes. but at some point I think the Attorney General will also say, well, the, look, the case is over. Uh, we've sealed the documents. Well, that was part of the agreement, blah, blah, blah. I think there will be an all-out effort to protect Joe Biden by the Justice Department. I, I think it's that corrupt. I think Merrick Garland is a partisan hack. I think he is not letting this case run its natural course. There's no way you can investigate Hunter Biden's uh, tax taxes and the income that he got without looking at his checking accounts and oh, yeah. asking why is Joe Biden getting money from Hunter Biden. Oh, that, no question. That simple. No question, and I agree with all of what you just said. 
But I would still say even if he pleads out, even if he pled out to a felony on the gun charge or or what or tax evasion or whatever, you, you still have the opportunity of House Republicans to say, well, that's fine. The Department of Justice is done with him, but we're not done with the big guy. And we can bring Tony Bobulinski before a congressional committee. We can bring this other whistleblower that came forward who's not identified yet before congressional committees and let them air what they know in uh, for public consumption. I agree with you. They could do that. And some of them will want to. Um, I don't know that the Republicans will will be that adventuresome in this. I mean, it, they would be. be taking a risk politically. I'm sure the, the Mitt Romneys of the world will will say, leave it, leave it alone. People don't care about it. So I don't know how much stomach there will be on the in the Republican leadership for that kind of adventure, particularly if the case is closed. Uh, so I think that would add an obstacle to those who want to keep it alive. But anyway, just very quickly, the second thing I thought would happen if the Republican red wave took effect was that Joe Biden would announce fairly quickly, fairly soon in the uh, in the new year that he was not going to seek reelection. And that would further put a damper on any of these investigations. Mm -hmm. It would be a way of shutting it down also that, you know, let him go off into the sunset. Let's move on. I think that that was the message he sent at the press conference, right? Let's move on. Let's look at new things. Of course, not MAGA, not that. No, we can't, we can't move on from that. That's our holy grail. But you guys should move on from Hunter and me and all of that stuff. So, look, right now, though, that the as we're still settling control of, of the two chambers, um, I think it's it, there is more of a possibility that Biden does run. Not, I'm not convinced he will. I think it would be a mistake. But he, look, he may think, why should I quit now? I mean, I pulled it off once. I can do it again. I mean, mm -hmm. goodness. I, I mean, so. the, you, <laughs> I yeah. You wonder does. about the senility issues, but uh, he he doesn't seem to. At this point, there's no sign that he is uh, finished in his yeah. own mind. So the election. Oh, I just want to talk about Georgia real quick because the election season continues there. And uh, do you think President Trump should go and uh, join a fundraiser or a rally with Herschel Walker? Um, I think. Look, uh, Trump. Trump's endorsement of his candidates. I was. I was at an event last night where this topic was discussed uh, thoroughly. I, th I think there's a lot of things being mushed together with Trump and his endorsements. <clears throat> First thing is. He does not give them any money, really. He has a, a reported $115 million pack that he raised. He spent $15 million. He has $100 million in the bank. I don't know if Herschel Walker got a penny of that. <laughs> the second thing is he doesn't really help them in any way. He, he'll have a rally in their state. He'll bring them on stage. He'll talk about them for 30 seconds. But it's really about him. And And then finally, I have to say that the the issue that the election was stolen, not that there were irregularities, not that the Democrats manipulated all of the COVID era regulations and things, but that it was stolen. I've talked to him about that. And I said, is it a litmus test for you, for the people you endorse and whether voters should support you? He said, no, no, no. But in fact, it is. It is a litmus test. And I asked him, 
what do you want? You say it was stolen. What are you expecting the result of that to be? Well, I just think we need ballot security. We need X. We need Y and Z. I said, so you think there should be a national law, federal law, controlling elections? He said, yes. I said, but your party doesn't. There's no support in the Republican Party for nationalizing the voter laws. It's right. in the Constitution. Right. So it's, that kind, it's just a, it's a rallying cry. It's a kind of grievance that it, I think has become a, a, a burden for a lot of those candidates. And I think that it, it's a dead end. It's a dead end politically. It's a dead end intellectually and practically. So I, for the life of me, I think that uh, his way of doing this is is not working well. <clears throat> and then finally, just quickly, his attacks on DeSantis, his threats to smear him, despicable, absolutely despicable. I mean, for me, that was a changing moment. I think Donald Trump is, is at this point, he's more of a burden for Republicans than he is a help. So I don't know what he's going to do with Herschel Walker, um, but I think it, the further he stays away from him, uh, for a lot of people, it will, it will be good. Even in Georgia, look at how well Brian Kemp did uh, going against Trump. I mean, if, if, you know, look at the Raffensperger even, right? They won by big amounts. Uh, you know, uh, DeWine in Ohio won in a much bigger race than J.D. Vance did, a much, much bigger margin. So... The Trump effect is is not a consistent effect everywhere, and in some cases, it's a. I mean, look at the people he picked. Look at Mastriano in Pennsylvania. I mean, that is why Oz lost. There was no top of the ticket. Mastriano well, was wiped out. You could also argue look at the look at picking Oz over yeah. McCormick too. But but I yeah, want to get exactly right. Uh, but even but, Oz, I think, could have won had there been a stronger top of the ticket. But I, I so, to, yeah, look, uh, I, 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 am, I admire many of the things that Trump did, but I think we're entering a new era now. When he, when he went after DeSantis that way, it struck me that he would have been delighted if DeSantis had lost the election. I mean, that, that's, that's much too far. That, that's a bridge way too far. Well, I mean, he's, he's doing to himself what other people can. He's, 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 he's uh, self-immolating with some of those comments. Yes. I agree with you. Um, real quick on New York. So Zeldin came up a little bit short, but uh, good performance in congressional races, particularly uh, taking out Sean Patrick Maloney. And and so is there is there hope for New York, even though at the state level, you know, the upsets didn't happen? Uh, it, yes, there is some hope, um, but it's it's a very difficult slog. I mean, I, I think Lee Zeldin was a fine candidate. He worked like the devil. He had in the end enough money. Uh, to be on television and, and to do everything he needed to do. Uh, super PACs rallied around him. So uh, I think it was a good test. The problem is that New York is so blue. Um, there are more than two to one registered Democrats to Republicans. But that even that doesn't tell the whole story because it's changed. So the last time a Republican won statewide, George Pataki, 2002, the, since then, there are a million more registered Democrats and yeah. about 200,000 fewer registered Republicans. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just so hard now. Uh, and I think Zeldin lost by roughly 300,000. The problem is in this New York City, where it's just so blue, uh, and that people vote 
you know, in, in a pretty consistent manner uh, and in large enough numbers that it's impossible to overcome. So Zeldin got about 30%, maybe a little bit more of the city vote. Uh, and that's just not enough. I mean, he thought that was the bare minimum he needed. Uh, but there was a big turnout. I mean, it's only 43% of the registered voters voted statewide. But that was still a pretty big turnout given some recent elections. So he was just swamped by the Democratic turnout, even yeah. though in those districts. By the way, I'll just say quickly, those districts, the Republicans were able to win because they, the, uh, the redistricting process was done by a special master after the Democrats went piggy, piggy, piggy on it, and it was thrown out by the courts. Right. So it was very interesting, a neutral a neutral drawing of the lines creates a different effect. I think that's one of the lessons that Republicans should take from this. He is Michael Goodwin, a columnist for the New York Post, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.